I'd like to inspire you to practice with tremendous zeal, and I'd like to give you some hints or techniques for doing the practice with tremendous zeal. So I have two agendas. I'd like to tell you a little bit about two sources that give me tremendous inspiration. For myself, these days, one of the predominant awarenesses I have, perhaps because I'm getting older, but I like to think it's because I'm getting wiser, is about how fast time is going by and how little time we have. Sometimes in the middle of a retreat, especially when practice is difficult or perhaps somewhat dry, there's a tendency to look forward to the end of the retreat and it seems like a million miles away. And then there's the multiplication routine that takes the number of days left in the retreat times 24. So then you know the number of hours between now and the time that you're actually on the road again. And then as days go by, there's a way of thinking to yourself, well, there's only eight days left or only seven days left. And there's a way of knowing that and knowing it in a way that really inspires zeal and practice. There's only seven days left, only eight days left, only nine days left. I remember uh, throughout my life, one of the lines of poetry that I thought about a lot is a line from The Cherry Tree by A. E. Hausman. Perhaps you know it. It's one in which he reflects that now of my threescore years and ten twenty will not come again and take from seventy springs a score. It only leaves me fifty more. And I think about that, and I don't know how many more I have, how many more springs, how many more retreats, how many more opportunities for practice. Each day may seem long, sometimes difficult, but each day will pass, and when it comes to the end of the retreat, time will seem to collapse. And the whole retreat seem, will seem to collapse down to one minute, one moment, actually zero. Poof, all gone. And it's just a memory. I have a tremendous sense of urgency to use every single moment. There's another source of tremendous inspiration to me. What I think about a lot is the absolute ultimate goal of this practice. The goal of this practice is freedom. There are interim benefits along the way. There are benefits that probably many of you know about and probably all of you will sample some of in the course of this practice. Some calmness, some relaxation, some sharpening of sense perception, perhaps some resolution of psychological issues in your life. They're all wonderful benefits. But the real, ultimate, absolute goal of this practice is freedom. Complete and absolute peace of mind and heart, the kind of peace of mind and heart that enables us to say yes to all of our experience, to be open to our lives, in the fullest kind of way. It's the kind of peace of mind that 
comes from knowing, from seeing quite clearly what is true about all experience, that it's impermanent, that there's nothing that provides enduring satisfaction because there is no enduring, that all experience is empty of anything permanent. There is no permanent. Every moment is empty, dying as it's being born, just as we are. It is knowing these truths absolutely, truths that somehow we've been trained to guard against because they seem frightening, that actually allows us to be free in our lives, to lead our lives fully, to savor our lives, to play in our lives. Freedom is very inspiring to me. This is from a book called Tranquility and Insight by Amadeo Solilaris. He set writes that the goal of vipassana practice is to cultivate the mindful, non-reactive observation of bodily and mental processes so as to develop an increasingly thorough awareness, an awareness undistorted by our usual desires, fears, and views of the true nature of these processes, that they're impermanent, that they're without self, and therefore involving suffering on our part until we learn to let go. It is through mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion that makes us perceive what is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is permanent, impermanent, and seeing that there is quite literally nothing to worry about. The first hint that I want to give you as a help for your practice has to do with faith in yourself and self-confidence. To whatever degree I have faith in myself and confidence in myself, am I able to inspire my practice with zeal? So here are some things that give me faith and give me confidence. From the very beginning, one of the things that drew me to this particular practice is the fact that the teachers in the West, the teachers that I studied with, are just plain folks, just like me. I respected them enormously in the sense of appreciating that they knew something about the paths of the mind that I didn't know and that they knew how to teach it to me. But the fact that I knew that they were working with this practice alongside me and in their own lives made it not distant from me and made it possible for me to imagine that I could do this too. I remember sitting in the back of this room, I know the very place actually, probably 12 years ago in the early flushes of being very much in love with Dharma, very much in love with the teaching, and very much in the very beginning stages of my own practice, looking at the teachers up in front and listening to them and thinking to myself, I'm going to do that someday. The fact that my teachers 
our plain people just like me who know these paths is very encouraging. I think to myself, it's a path I can learn. It's not mysterious or capricious. It's a lawful dharma. It's not magic. It's a normal thing, after all, that we ask of ourselves to allow the mind to unclutter so it can be clear and open. It's really the natural state of minds. Here's another hint for keeping the self-confidence up. There's a way of looking around and seeing someone who's walking, doing the walking practice in a way that seems very diligent and very mindful. And perhaps it is. And there's a way of recognizing that your roommate gets up 3.30 in the morning, puts on their clothes, and disappears, presumably to start sitting. And there's a way of seeing both of those kinds of things and feeling very demoralized. What a terrible yogi I am. I'm never going to be able to do this. And there's a way of seeing that and becoming totally inspired. I could do that too. That's just a plain thing to do. When I was a child, one of my favorite stories was the little engine that could. You probably, many of you, remember that story. A very brief summary of the story is that various large-scale locomotives find themselves, for one reason or another, unable to take a vital truckload of dolls and toys to the other side of the mountain where all the good little girls and boys are waiting for them. And it finally falls on the small little engine who never gets called on for doing these big jobs to try to do it. And nobody thinks she can. But undaunted by the huge job, she starts out. And her refrain as she chugs up the mountain is, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And coming down the other side, her refrain is, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. It's a wonderful inspiration. This is a plain practice. There are no hidden teachings. We tell them all to you. You can do it too. This is not an esoteric practice for a few special people. This is a practice for everyone. Here's another hint for confidence. Take the refuges. Take them often. Take them seriously. I do. We take them formally together at the beginning of a retreat. I often do them at the beginning of each sitting. When I sit down, I repeat them to myself. Repeat them three times. I do them in English or I do them in Pali. doesn't matter. There are two functions that I experience in the taking of the refuges. One is that the deliberate, careful recitation of the refuges to myself has a way of immediately gathering the concentration and focusing the concentration, bringing me here from where I've been, from walking or from whatever. It's a way of deepening the concentration and making me grounded in the moment. Also, the very taking the refuges themselves inspires me. When I say to myself, I take refuge in the Buddha, 
I am enormously inspired by thinking about the message of the Buddha, that freedom is possible. That the Buddha was a human being, a person, just like us. He did this path, he taught this path, and freedom is possible. And when I say to myself, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take enormous courage from the fact that there is a path. I don't have to reinvent it or rediscover it for myself. It's a path that's been tried and trued and tested, that many people have walked on. It reminds me how fortunate I feel to have been gifted with learning this path in this lifetime. When I say to myself, I take refuge in the Sangha, I take enormous courage and vitality from the sense of all of us here, from the people I know and from the people I don't know, from all of us who have come here to sit together and to practice together. Sometimes people who are new to the practice feel a little awkward about the fact that we don't look at each other in the eye or talk to each other greet each other, and it seems, at least at the outset, that there's a kind of unfriendliness about what we do. And actually, I think of this really as the way in which we are friendly to each other. I feel so enormously the gift of people who have come to hold me up by sitting next to me, by lending me their energy, that really the space that we give each other by not talking to each other and by not interacting with each other is an enormous gift that comes from the friendliest of spirits. Sometimes this whole path, you know, is called the path of friendliness. I like that very much. Those are all kinds of hints about confidence and faith in yourself. I'd like to talk specifically about hints in working with the contemplative practice so that I'd like to remind you about what kind of contemplative practice this is. Vipassana practice is a mixed meditation practice. It's an awareness practice that's rooted in a foundation of concentration and tranquility. Its goal is insight into the nature of experience that comes from mindfully knowing what is true about each moment of experience. In fact, if it were possible, the only instruction one might give would be just pay attention to everything. Just watch everything. There are indeed practices and spiritual paths that really start with the notion that we can start from there and say, just watch everything, just be aware. This particular practice reflects the awareness that for most of us, it's terribly hard just to be aware of everything, that our minds are cloudy and confused and habituated to certain patterns and sleepy, and that there's so much going on in our minds at one time that it's hard 
to really be aware with clarity and with calmness. So in this practice, what we do is we try to consolidate a foundation of calmness and tranquility. And from that grounded foundation, secure tranquility, we then have the ability to look clearly at our experience and see it and know it and be open to it. So that there are two parts to this practice, is the development of concentration and tranquility and the development of awareness and insight. And all through the practice, what we continue to do is we try to establish a balance between those two aspects of the practice. If you've just arrived two days ago and your instructions thus far have been try very much to stay with the breath, it's because in the beginning of practice, at any time that we re-begin to do intensive practice, we use the breath or the sense of the feet walking as a way of establishing a base of concentration and tranquility. From that base of concentration and tranquility, we then systematically open the mind to all of the aspects of our experience, all body sensations, all mind sensations. Here are some hints about consolidating the tranquility aspect, the concentration aspect of your practice. Try as much as you can, certainly in the beginning phases of practice, to stay with the primary object. Stay with the breath or stay with the movement in walking. Make the resolve, if you can, that when the mind has wandered and you discover that it's wandered, to bring it back to the next breath, to the next step. Sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes the mind seems quite absorbed in where it's wandered to, glued to what it's wandered to. And in that case, you really need to look very carefully at where the mind has wandered, look at it, feel it, know it, recognize it, and then let go of it, and carefully and mindfully bring your attention back to the breath, back to the walking, and begin again. Sometimes the moment of recognition of wandering is so clear and so sharp that the mind really wakes up and is quite open in that moment. Oh, wandering. And the mind's really clear and really open, and you really can catch the next breath and catch the next step. Sometimes people feel when they've discovered that they've wandered that they're obliged to go back and investigate where they had wandered to when, in fact, they can be back with the breath and the step. You don't need to go back anywhere. Don't need to know where you were. You only need to know where you are. And sometimes the mind is quite open and you're really able to be right back here. There's an expression that comes from the Zen tradition Develop a mind that clings to naught. Here's another hint for developing concentration. Don't squander energy. 
there's a way in which we have breaks in paying attention that we're not really aware of. And indeed, every moment of paying attention builds the foundation of concentration. There's a way of sitting down with your lunch and thinking, whoops, I forgot my water. I'll just go get a glass of water and I'll come back and sit down and then I'll pay attention. (laughs) And the whole in-between gets lost. Or there's a way of saying, whoops, bell rang. Now I'll just hurry out to my walking place because I have a really good walking place and then somebody else will be in it if I don't hurry out there. And then when I get out there, then I'll pay attention to walking. You don't have to ever get out to the walking place. Every moment of paying attention counts. Pay attention to put on the sweater. Pay attention to standing up. Pay attention to getting out. If you never get to the walking place, that's just fine. Every moment of paying attention counts in terms of building concentration. Here's another hint for not squandering energy. Don't look around too much. Keeping custody of the eyes is not a peculiar monkish custom. It's actually very helpful. It keeps down the buzz level in the mind. There's less to chatter about and speculate about, reflect about. When you do look around, you do need to look around so that you don't walk into things and so that you see what you're picking out for your lunch. When you do look around, see if you can keep noting the process, looking, seeing, liking, not liking, judging. Every moment of paying attention counts in developing concentration. There's another aspect of developing tranquility that I'd like to mention as well. And that's the practice of metta. We've talked about it a little bit every day. As people begin to settle down and the mind starts to quiet down, the mind starts to open and all kinds of things present themselves, So all kinds of things about ourselves that we have judgments about. We often feel bad either about our, our practice as yogis, or the contents of our mind, or the feelings in our heart. All kinds of ways of beginning to feel bad about yourself, which makes for agitation in the mind. Doing metta is a cure for agitation in the mind and agitation in the body. When I'm doing intensive practice, when I'm doing vipassana practice, and I'm doing metta in it, it's usually metta for myself. And it's usually a very simple metta. I say to myself, may I be peaceful? May I be happy? May I be peaceful? May I be happy? And the saying of it has, again, two functions. One of the functions is that the very saying of it with care and concentration, builds concentration in the mind and augments the amount of tranquility in the heart. And when I think about that, that intention, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, it reminds me of the possibility that that might be true. And it really conditions some amount of peacefulness, 
and some amount of contentment. I actually think that I carry two voices in me, at least. One of them is the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, go and do it, you can do it, other people do it. It's kind of like a locker room coach voice. And the other voice is sort of my grandmother's voice, saying, it's okay, you can be peaceful, you can be happy. I am very kind to myself when I practice. I'm a very zealous yogi and I work very hard and I do it with tremendous kindness for myself. I'd really hope you do that too. Here's another hint about concentration that I think, I hope, will help with confidence as well. This is really good news. When you hear all the instructions about how to develop concentration, it sounds like you really have to make a tremendous effort. And indeed you do. And in fact, there's a certain point at which it becomes easy. We pay attention and concentrate, and then it gets easy. It's kind of like when you go in a big stadium and you see someone up in the stands who's waiting for someone they know who comes in at a far gate, and you see the person up in the stands trying to attract the attention of the person who's just come in. And they wave, and they wave, and they jump up and down, and they're sort of frantic, and they wave, and they wave and wave, and you see them waving, and then finally you see that the person that they're waving at sees them, and then the person sits down, and they think, phew, they see me. Now I can relax. I can sit down. You don't have to keep on waving. And in that whole big stadium, they can sit down and the person will come and find them. Developing concentration is the same. You're waving at yourself. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Oh, I found myself. Phew. Here I am. Now I can relax. I can't get lost. I found myself. And then after that, It isn't as if the mind never wanders. It wanders, but it knows how to find you. And it comes back and finds you. (laughs) All by itself. When you know that you can't get lost anymore, it conditions an enormous amount of confidence and tranquility. Well, now comes the second part of practice. Now that I found myself, now that I'm calm, what do I see? What's happening? This is mindfulness. This is the fun part of practice. You get to see everything that's true about experience. And you get to see it all in your very own laboratory, in your very own fathom-long body, the Buddha said. You don't need extra equipment. Mind sensations and body sensations. That's all there is. The Buddha said, it is in this very fathom-long body with its perceptions and with its mind that I make known the world and the arising of the world and the extinction of the world and the path leading to the extinction of the world. 
Mind sensations and body sensations, that's all there is. And you get to see their true nature. You get to see their ephemeral quality, how they come and go, how they interrelate, how a thought in the mind gives rise to a feeling in the body, how body feelings condition mind states, how and when intentions arise in the mind, how intentions condition actions. It's a huge, beautiful, complex, lawful dharma, and you get to see it. You get to recognize what attachment is, what greed and aversion feel like in the mind, suffering and release from suffering become then not an intellectual concept, but something that's a direct awareness. It's amazing. And the mind doesn't wander. It's really fascinating. It's more than fascinating. It's like a thriller novel in which you're the hero. When it becomes clearer, what a tangled web of liking and not liking we're each involved in and how myriad and subtle the traps and pitfalls that complicate the web are, the desire to find the way out becomes more and more compelling and the zeal to practice really intensifies. So we'll look closer at how to practice mindfulness, how to see into every moment. So you really can practice paying very close attention in every moment, not just on the zafu, not just with the breath, not just with the feet in the walking, not even in the eating or in the showering, in every moment, in every single moment. I'd like to propose what has been for me over the years a very fruitful meditation practice. And you can consider it for yourself. Here is my practice. I like to be the last person online for lunch. Seriously. I thought about telling you that, and I thought, what if everybody took that on as a practice tomorrow? (laughs) How strange it would be. The bell would ring. Nobody would get up. The kitchen would become alarmed. So I'll tell you in advance. I'm going to tell you about what an extraordinary practice it is, but I'd like to urge you in advance for not everyone to do it every single day. (laughs) But look what happens if you decide to be the last person online for lunch. You get to feel, when the bell rings, the intention in the mind to get up. And if you don't get up, you get to find out that intentions are not imperatives. They condition action, but they're not imperatives. And if you don't get up, you get to see what restraint feels like in the mind. And after a while, if everybody else gets up, you get to experience doubt. Like, this is a foolish exercise. Why am I doing this? Everybody else is eating lunch, and I'm sitting here like an idiot. When you finally do decide to get up, you experience relief in the mind. Oh, good, getting up. You get to experience what keeping the consciousness steady feels like, assuming that you continue to walk out of here slowly, mindfully, really paying attention to each step. 
you get to notice how the mind inclines forward. Never mind inclines forward, leaps forward at the prospect of some sort of pleasurable experience or what we think is going to be a pleasurable experience. And perhaps you get a hint of how much in life the mind is continually leaping forward to what it thinks is going to be a pleasurable experience. If there's still a line, when you get over to the dining room, you get to stand and feel your whole body, standing, standing. If feeling your body in space, your whole body, is not a feeling that's usually readily available to you, I really suggest that you try it in the lunch line. I think it's one of the highest awareness levels of the day. Lunch is one of the biggest stimulus inputs of the day. Mind gets really alert. As you wait, you can be mindful of waiting, anticipating. You can do smelling meditation of the air, of the plants, of the food. Lunch meditation, lunch line meditation, is often much more lively than Zafu meditation. Finally, as you approach the food table, assuming you still stay mindful, you can get to see liking and disliking and happy and disappointed and a million judgments. This is better than yesterday. This is not better than yesterday. Look at that person taking too much food. Look at that person not taking any food. Wonder what's the matter with them. I wonder if they're showing off. Oh, gosh, I'm so judgmental, humiliated, (laughs) demoralized. I wish I could shut off this opinion machine, desire. Uh Uh-oh, there goes the last baked potato. Alarm, anger. Oh, no, wait, here come more potatoes, relief. can actually feel the alarm in your body and you can feel the relief in your body. And it goes on and on. By the time you sit down, you probably won't be as hungry as you imagined. (laughs) Actually, I think it's the joy and the excitement of being mindful which is in itself very satisfying. You will be able to eat. And when you eat mindfully, you'll be able to see the disappointment when the meal is over or when your hunger is over. If you run out of food and you're still hungry, you'd be disappointed. If you run out of hunger and there's still food, you're also disappointed because the great pleasure is to feel the desire and to put in the food. And once you're not hungry anymore, that's not even pleasurable. (laughs) And then you find what happens is the mind immediately scans forward and it thinks, I wonder what's for tea. And it's not that your mind is naughty. Everybody's mind does that. It's the nature of minds to reach out with desire. It's really in seeing that that the possibility of liberation begins to exist. Here's another hint. As you begin to pay attention to each moment of experience and recognize it, it begins to get really interesting. Look at that. Look at that. That's really interesting. Avoid as much as you can 
the tendency to speculate about your experience or to reflect about your experience. As it gets interesting, it's really very seductive to think about that. Wow, look what's happening. I wonder what this means. I wonder what that means. I wonder if I do this, will that happen? I read a wonderful story the other day. Robert Fulgham, the man who wrote I, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in the Kindergarten, he tells a story about um, an Olympic Airlines flight that takes off from Athens on its way to Heraklion and for some reason lands through some mistake in a city 150 miles away from there. But the luggage goes on to Heraklion. And so they somehow commandeer a bus and they're loading all of these disgruntled tourists onto the bus to continue for the next 150 miles over a bumpy road. All the tourists are going along with it. And one foreign tourist suddenly totally distraught, begins waving his arms in the air and shouting, what does this mean? Where am I? Where are we going? And the Olympic Airlines manager says to him, please, sir, we Greeks have been discussing this question for 2,000 years. (laughs) They have very difficult answers then and now. Please, just get on the bus. I'd like to suggest that you remember that story when you begin to think a lot about your practice. Just get on the bus. Just do the practice. Just feel the breath. Just feel the steps. I saw an ad the other day for Nike running shoes. It's a beautiful graphics, and it has three words on it. And I thought, well, that's terrific. I should bring that down with me. We should put it up. It could be a logo for this practice. It says, just do it. Just do it. I have one more hint, and I hesitated a little in thinking how I would tell you this hint, because sometimes when I think about it, or I think about explaining it, it seems like at first blush it might seem like a confusing hint, or too paradoxical, or too simplistic, or too non-compassionate. With all those provisos, I'll tell you the hint. One of my teachers, of whom I am very fond, is fond of saying to me as I leave an interview, be happy. And for a long time, I didn't really appreciate that as an instruction. I thought of it more as kind of a nice salutation, like in California we say to people, have a good day. It has come to me over time that there's a real significance in that instruction. Please try to be happy. That does not mean try to have a sense of humor. Although I'd like to suggest that you try to have a sense of humor in practice and in life. It's a very valuable thing to have. It does also not mean that I don't know that there are a lot of people here in the middle of very difficult situations or in fact recalling very difficult and painful situations. And it certainly doesn't mean that I'd like anyone to ignore or repress or rise above or do anything else with an awareness of pain in their experience. Indeed, quite the opposite. I'd like to encourage you to have the awareness of pain as directly as you can and let it go. It'll rise again, you allow it, and you let it go. 
The pain is not what causes the suffering. Pain is just pain. It's sharp feeling in the mind and sharp feeling in the body. It's the relationship to the pain, the aversion, the alarm, the stories we tell ourselves around the pain that causes the suffering. When the stories are happening, mindfulness is not happening. The mind tightens with alarm and aversion, find that energy dissipates, the mind becomes confused. It will happen to me when I'm practicing, perhaps I get into some difficult situation, difficult mind feelings, difficult body feelings. And instead of being mindful of them, I get caught up in them. I start to think about them. Start to think stories about, look how my practice is falling apart, look how my mind is falling apart, look how I really can't do it. And I get more and more demoralized. Just as it's possible for me to pick up my faith and confidence, it's also possible for me to undermine my faith and confidence. And I might be going along for some period of time, lost and absorbed in the stories about my situation, and suddenly the voice of my teacher will say, will arise in my experience and will say, be happy. And I remember the injunction, and I think to myself, be happy? I'm wretched. But in that moment, just the jolt of remembering that, how can I be happy, introduces for me the possibility of choice. Choice exists. I cannot choose to be happy the whole rest of my life. I can't even choose to be happy in the next moment. I can't choose never to have this painful feeling again. But in this moment, I can really choose to open fully to my experience, whatever it is, to really see it and feel it clearly, and to let it go and take a breath clearly, or take a step clearly, sip my tea mindfully. In a moment, the feeling may be back. But in any moment that I elect to allow myself to be open to it, allow myself to experience it, allow it to go, and allow myself to take the next breath and the next step, in that moment, I'm really free. In the moment that I open to it, in the moment that I'm feeling it fully, it's just what it is. It's pain, pain in the mind, pain in the body. But there's no pushing and pulling in the mind. And there's no suffering. Maybe just a moment. Pain may come back, the aversion as well, suffering as well. But there are moments of freedom. It's disarming sometimes because when I realize that that voice says to me, be happy, and I think to myself, I could. In this very moment, I could let go of it all, let go of the story, open my heart, open my mind, let it in, and it will vanish. There's almost a, a hesitation in the mind. It would be so unusual for it to vanish. Sometimes you think to yourself, but this feeling, this story, this is a really important one. I can't let this one disappear. You can. 
The mind just isn't accustomed to letting go. That's why we have to practice so much. When we start this practice, we start with paying attention to the breath, welcoming a breath, allowing a breath, letting it go. We're conditioning the mind, using the breath as a quite neutral object, to open fully, to let go fully. We begin to work with the breath as a neutral experience, and by and by, with some basis of calm, calm, and some experience in openness, the heart and mind, then we can stay open for all manner of experience, painful or blissful. can have the pain, pain whatever, pain in the knee, pain in the mind, without alarm. Ah, pain. And then it's gone. Take a breath. Feel the feeling fully and let it go. Feel the grief fully, let it go. Savor the tea fully, let it go. After all, that's really what this practice is meant to do, to train the mind to be able to be open and to let go one moment at a time. No pushing away and no holding on and no suffering. Develop a mind that clings to naught. That's really freedom. It won't produce a life that's free from pain. There are no lives that are free from pain. For a life free from pain, this is the wrong planet. (laughs) In this realm, there is pain and loss and separation in every moment, even moments of beauty and joy and awe and wonder. But if we let go of each moment, then we can have it all the beauty and the joy and the awe and the wonder and the grief and the sadness and the loss, one moment at a time, for however many moments we have. Sometimes I think about this practice of vipassana, this practice of opening to each moment, feeling it fully, letting it go, is really a practice in learning how to play. Everything I said is true, except one thing. I said earlier on, it's a lawful dharma, and it's not magic. It's a lawful dharma, and it is magic. The magic is not the kind of magic of pulling a rabbit out of a hat. It's the magic of how awesomely wonderful it is, how it all works. how awesomely wonderful it is to be able to watch it. The sense of freedom that comes from even one glimpse of the truth is really magic. Let's just sit for a few minutes.
This talk was given by Silvio Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 20, 1990. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.